Hey, what's up, Blazer fans? Tara here with another preview episode. Today, we're going to get to know a little bit more about the Indiana Pacers. And to help us out, we've got Caitlin Cooper from Indie Cornrows joining us. Caitlin, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me back on. It's been a while. Yes, it has been. And it's been, uh, you know, it's been about 12 months, according to Skype, the last time we chatted. And a lot has happened to both teams. So let's just dive right in and uh, have you tell us a little bit about what are some of the main storylines that the Indiana Pacers uh, have been have been going on with the Pacers this season? Well, I think right now they're headed, they're kind of muddled in this adjustment period with Victor Oladipo coming back from his injury and that just really shuffling and reshuffling lineups while they're also dealing with other injuries. I mean, Miles Turner was out sick for a bit and TJ Warren was out with a concussion. And now last night, Jeremy Lamb suffered a pretty terrible injury and they're just really struggling, lost seven to nine. So. Hopefully, maybe our two sides of this next game can commiserate with one another on all that is wrong and ails them. So <laughs> we could just have a, a, a group hug, I think, maybe <laughs> after the game, of course. Obviously, yes. everyone is going to uh, fight as hard as they can while they are on the court. Um, so Victor Oladipo is coming back and getting him his way worked into the starting lineup uh, at the beginning of the year. Kind of like what were the expectations for when he was, um, you know, what that was going to be like? I mean, realistically, I think if people were being honest with themselves, I don't think it was really fair to expect that he was going to look as explosive. I mean, so much of his game is about his closing speed on both ends of the floor, and I don't necessarily think that it was, as I said, fair to expect that when you look at players like Gordon Hayward or Paul George, and those aren't the same injuries, but how long it took them to start looking like themselves or if they still even look like themselves. So... There's that, but some of when he's coming back now, it isn't even necessarily like his first step or his explosiveness. It's like he's not taking a lot of what I would term on target layups. He gets into the paint and it's it's kind of a weird combination where he gets in and he sometimes presses and then just settles for an off-balance shot, or you'll notice a lot, like if you pay attention in the next game, assuming he's back, he's out right now with back soreness, which is just adding, you know, mm-hmm. insult to injury, but You'll notice a lot that he'll go off his left leg into a floater or, you know, he'll come off a jump shot and he'll land very softly on one leg. So I don't know if there's still somewhat of a mental component there or, you know, what's gone on with how he was practicing shooting and stuff in rehab. But that that isn't how he would have looked before when he would come off a pick. He would be very unbalanced and going straight up and down. I would liken him a lot to being like a springboard diver where he was just so explosive coming off a pick and going straight up and exploding against the drop coverage for a quick mid-range jumper and he doesn't he doesn't look like that I mean you'll you'll know it when you see it Mm -hmm. when he's in action that he isn't quite there and you know the shooting he's a guy that he's getting around 11 shots per game and he's shooting 33 percent so it's just been a pretty rough go for him offensively some of the defensive stuff that he does away from the ball you'll be like yeah you know that's Victor his ability to still be able to tag and get back all the way to a shooter that level of closing speed where he can buzz around for steals and help and still be able to get back out to the perimeter that that part of his game is still something that you'll be able to recognize but offensively he just he was coming and pressing for a lot of shots and now a lot of what he does seems kind of predetermined 
he's putting a lot of extra spin on his pocket passes. And it's like before he even necessarily sees the pick and roll coverage, it's I'm predetermined. I'm going to pass this. I'm going to be deferential. And I think just finding that degree of balance even was something that he was struggling with a bit before he suffered this injury in between when he was out with the 11 game absence with the knee injury. So I'm not sure that we're going to see somebody really close to what Victor was yet this season. I think you're not going to see something like that for maybe, you know, into next year. Mm-hmm. Well, so who are the main playmakers on the team right now? Well, <laughs> Malcolm Brogdon, he's, he's taken this role for Milwaukee where now he's, he's a primary ball handler. He has one of the highest time of possessions in the NBA. I mean, he's top 10 in that. That's pretty typical for the Pacers system. That's very point guard centric with how they kickstart and initiate a lot of their offense. And he too, which is kind of making the Victor struggles exacerbated. He too is going through a bit of, uh, not a bit, a pretty big downturn. I mean, I made a joke last night that it looks like he's aged five years and one and a half months. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's going on completely there, but when you look at his drive numbers, his free throw attempt numbers, his free throw percentage numbers, they have dipped quite a bit since the beginning of January, which He's had back spasm issues and a hamstring issue. He was out for a concussion. I don't know if any of that's causing lingering effects for him, but you'll see it for him on both ends of the floor. He's not, I mean, part of it, the shift from being what he was around, you know, Giannis Antetokounmpo's gravitational pull, opening up a lot of shots for him as like a spot up threat is very different, obviously going from being a point guard. He's not getting as many wide open threes and he's taking more difficult pull up threes. So his overall three point percentage, I mean, last year he was a 50, 40, 90 guy. And right now he's shooting about 31% from three and he's not making the really easy ones either. Like the catch and shoots, those that are six plus feet, which those numbers I know can be a little bit hinky, but I mean, he's shooting 28.8% right now on wide open threes and is at 31 on catch and shoot. So there's, I just think that there's something else brewing or going on there. But like defensively, he's never really been a guy that really gets into the ball at the point of attack. But you'll even notice when he's off ball, like doing a weak side rotation. I mean, this is a play I could bring up right off the top of my head. They played the Pelicans and J.J. Redick was just standing on the three-point line and pointed like, hey, attack from diagonally from this slot to that one, knowing that TJ Warren would have to sink down to Jackson Hayes and Malcolm Brogdon's not playing halfway between those two shooters at all. He's just standing straight up. He's slow getting out to the perimeter and he's giving up angles and not in a stance when he's out there. He just looks very brittle on both ends of the floor. So if if they can't figure out what's going on with him and Victor separately and together, they're just, they're going to have problems. That's just the long and the short of it, especially now that Jeremy's out. I mean, their bench has been a strength, so I'm not too worried about the Jeremy effect with regards to just putting Aaron Holiday into that spot. But when Malcolm and Victor are two of your top guys and they're already struggling, it just makes the situation that much worse. So, you, you said that the the bench has been a strength. Uh, last night, the Blazers played Detroit, and I remember looking up at the uh, hustle board at one point and noticing that the Detroit bench was outscoring the Blazer bench 70 to 10. Um, oh, dear. <laughs> I was like, did they just put out ceremonial starters? And then, like, I, I didn't know, really know what was happening. But uh, tell me a little bit more about, like, what, you know, what the strengths are of, of your bench. 
Well, I think you got to look first and foremost, a lot of what the Pacers do offensively. Sabonis kind of is their system. You look at their on off numbers when he's off their offense is like, and this is on the whole season, not just what's going on of late, but their offense is like the equivalent of a 29th offense when he isn't on the floor. And he's kind of the through line for both units. They don't play exactly the same way, but when I say bench, that means Sabonis plus he'll still be in and then right. Be a bunch, right. Bunch of it will players. be Sabonis uh-huh. plus McConnell, Aaron holiday, Doug McDermott and Justin Holiday, and that group plays with a lot of um, I, what I'd say lyricism, a lot of free flowing movement. T.J. McConnell's pressing the ball ahead, and Justin Holiday and McDermott are running a lot of floppy action. And Sabonis is using handoffs, two man game with Doug McDermott. They just play with a lot of fluidity, and, and when Aaron's in that group, they add a little bit more consistent off ball shooting. They they do lack in size, though. I mean, the backcourt's pretty tiny, and then. We might get into this a little bit later with another question you had, but Justin Holiday's playing the four admirably, but he doesn't quite have the heft to always be defending that position. So, mm-hmm. but that's that's been a great group for them. Even when they're struggling right now, that group's solidly in the positive here in February, and they've been one of the top bench lineups in the NBA all year as just as a five man unit per 100. So, that's one thing that I would point to has still been generally a strength, assuming they can continue to play that deep in a playoff scenario. Other strengths that uh, remain at this point of the season after everybody else has gotten injured. Right, right. So, like, I mean, all year long, you would have set up until this point that, you know, the pick and roll with Brogdon and Sabonis was one of the surest buckets in the NBA. But, I mean, I think you still have to point to, even with Brogdon's struggles, he still hits the pull-up too at a really good rate. And so does TJ Warren. And that's a really controversial shot. I know the mid-range isn't super hip or in, but I think it does matter. our team. Right. I mean, I think it does matter in a playoff scenario to have players that can hit that shot at a high rate when they get ran off a three-point line or whatever it may be. And they're both top six and pull-up twos, minimum four attempts per game in their field goal percentage. And, and Brogdon's right on those really hasn't wavered. He's been right around 50 all year. And so is TJ Warren. I mean, TJ Warren's a guy that's going to get you 35 points and he might only attempt two threes in that game and might only get to the line once or twice. Like that's his degree of being able to go get a basket and how just quick and efficient he is making a movement, whether it's cutting along the baseline. I mean, I like to call him baseline TJ Warren because I mean, those shots are like going extinct. So many people value the corner threes, which is obviously a great shot, but like he, he cuts in and exists in the baseline two area where you're not going to see a lot of people doing that. So that's kind of a throwback, little fun Easter egg to watch for when you see TJ Warren. Yeah. I mean, you have three TJs on your team. Right. How do you keep them all straight? (laughs) There was one fantastic play earlier in the year where when TJ Leaf was still in the rotation, all three of them were playing and they all missed shots consecutively. It was like, I don't remember the exact order, but it was like, TJ McConnell drove in, missed a shot. TJ Warren got it, fell and missed a fader. And then TJ Leaf went in and missed like a putback dunk. Like it, it was no other team could have that moment. That is that is a piece of pride. Should be hung in a museum somewhere. Yeah, like beautiful in its own way. Exactly. <laughs> so the last time the two teams played each other, just about a month ago, the Blazers uh, came out with a 10-point win. Uh, but Do- De- uh, Sabonis gave the team just about everything they could handle. So, And, of course, people in Portland, a lot of us have a soft spot for him. So tell us how his year has been. How Sabonis' year yeah. has been? Yeah, I mean, his numbers, he's still... This, I mean, he's still solidly averaging a double-double, and he's right around like five or six assists for for the 
tail end of January and February. I mean, like I said before, he's just a through line for both units. And I know screen assist isn't a very... Uh, um, oh my God, I love it, screen assist. You're talking yeah, my language. Right. Isn't a great number right now. I included that, the SB Nation's yeah. main flagship, let me write a story about Sabonis' screening techniques. And I remember I included that number because I know it isn't completely meaningful. I mean, an assist isn't completely meaningful because it requires somebody else making a shot. But when you're wanting to contextually like share with readers, hey, this guy's pretty good at this. I felt like including that number was valid. And I know that Sabonis sets a tons of screens, just like Rudy Gobert sets tons of screens in Utah. But there's also a reason why they set tons of screens, because it's a really good play. And there's really there's no other good number out there to contextualize that. But beyond my little rant on that, he has he's just got great subtle screening techniques, whether he's on the ball away from the ball. I mean, there's even times where you'll see like he might recognize something in transition and he screens his own man to free up a shooter if there's going to be a switch. He's just a you know a central hub, and it's really almost kind of remarkable because right now one of their weaknesses here in this month and in January they're like shooting thirty percent from three, and they already don't take a lot of threes. And for him being somebody that exists so much on the short roll or in the post, like how much he's having to create out of double teams right now, even with players who aren't making shots, and for him to still be getting as many assists as he is and being able to be a hub of that offense just speaks to how valuable he is to everything that the Pacers do. And, and maybe they even rely on him a little too much sometimes. I'd like to see them pay out of a little bit more offense that isn't so completely dependent on everything that he has to do. But clearly he's he's handled all of it really well, especially for a guy that, you know, before the season started, there was rumbles that the Pacers might be looking to potentially move him just because of the situation with him and Miles Turner and whether they were going to be able to reach agreement on an extension with him or not. Yeah, I'm looking at the box score and the last time they played, he had a triple double with uh, 27 points, 11, no, 14 rebounds and 11 assists and Brogdon didn't play. So I'm guessing that uh, accounted for some of his assists, but it sounds like, uh, I mean, we've all watched him and we remember Arvidas. So it's no surprise at all that he has those, uh, you know, playmaking skills. What what would you describe the team when with you know cur- currently who's healthy um, when everybody's clicking? What basketball? What does that look like? What should we be watching for? You talked about uh, TJ Warren cutting baseline and a couple other things. So like, what's kind of your high level description of what uh, everything? What it looks like when everything's clicking with the Pacers? Well, they're going to be moving the ball and they're not going to be, they don't have a lot of waste. They're going to run a lot of pick and roll and that's going to feed into some of the, what they do off spot ups. The bench unit's going to run a lot of stuff off screens. Like I said, a lot of movement there, but they are not going to turn the ball over a lot when they're playing well. They're the number one team in assist to turnover ratio. So they just, they do a lot of things with very little waste. Their half court offense efficiency wise is better than it's been over the last several years. They have more guys that can go get a basket without necessarily having a play called for them. And that tends to outweigh, or at least it was outweighing some of the steps back they've taken on the defensive end. This isn't the same defensive team that Blazer fans are going to be remembering from years past from the Pacers or from a Nate McMillan team. I mean, they you've seen lately they've even started dabbling into zone, which I know has been billed a little bit like, well, you know, the, a lot of teams are killing the Pacers with this, which is true. They struggle a lot against zone because it takes them out of the pick and roll. It makes it harder for Sabonis to post up and it makes them have to shoot threes at a higher volume they struggle against it but I think the big reason why they're experimenting with that to a degree is because they're struggling on defense themselves and they're searching for answers of what they're going to do I just think that Brogdon has been 
I, I hate to put it this way, but bad enough at the point of attack. And Jeremy Lamb, before he was hurt, was having enough issues containing the ball that they were kind of going to, let's see how we can contain some of these things with the paint packed. And for the sense that if they were to play, you know, the Sixers in a playoff series or the Celtics in the playoff series, it's harder for Kemba Walker to run high pick and roll against zone or for Joel Embiid to be posting them up and really getting Miles or Sabonis into foul trouble with that type of a play. But defensively, you will notice differences. I mean, you probably already did notice differences when Dame went for his like 50 point game when Miles was out in the last one. So that one, that game actually highlighted a lot of what goes wrong with them defensively. So 129 to 139. That's so many points (laughs) for right. Right. And I thought Dame in that game, it was interesting because like I was, I actually looked some of this up in anticipation for this podcast today and he has really impressed me this year, not only like with his overall dameness, but I feel like he's been even better handling like blitzing and trapping situations. You might tell me that I'm wrong, but I looked up that number on Synergy and he's scoring over a point per game in trapping situations. And I know the blitzing has previously been a pretty big issue. And obviously without Nurkic, I think would probably help you guys in that regard. Mm-hmm. But there were moments in late, which Sabonis is not good at hedging. We'll just put that out on the table. Miles would be stronger in this area but I remember late in the fourth quarter there was a moment where he came down across half court and he was like his timing was just perfection like before Sabonis even went to blitz he attacked and went away from the pick and it wasn't even that he split it he just went away literally from the trap and left Sabonis on the wrong side and went right down the lane and scored and I I'm not sure you would have seen that complete overall complete game from Lillard even a year ago. Maybe I'm wrong there, but every year we think that like he's added everything that he could possibly add. And then he adds something else, you know? So like one of my things that I do is go and I just look at his shot charts. And every time I look at a shot chart, it just gets out farther and farther and farther. And so like one of the things that he does is like people have to react to him as soon as he comes across the half line, they have to decide what they're going to do, you know, in, you know, a second before they would have to decide what they're going to do with everybody else. And so then I think he capitalizes on that hesitation and he just needs that split second where they're trying to figure out what am I supposed to do? Right. He just get that processes it so quickly because even in the first half, I mean, the Sabonis didn't even spend that much time defending Hassan Whiteside in that game. The Pacers actually had Jakar Samson doing it more, which was interesting, probably because he was a little bit quicker if they needed to blitz. I'm not entirely sure what the rationale behind that was. But Sabonis at one point was just leaning slightly forward and that was all Dame needed. He was just Mm -hmm. right past him to the basket. And it's, you can't even, like, if you're a big, you can't be leaning back slightly. You can't be leaning forward slightly or he's he's taking a step back and heating a deep three or he's going right past you. Like, Sabonis wasn't even in bad position and that was all that he needed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So... That's that's why Paul George said it was a bad shot because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for right. else it was. But we yeah uh, we are. Uh, but of course we are without Damien, so it'll be interesting oh, to see. Yeah, is he sick still? Uh, he sick? Yeah, he pulled his groin. He has oh. a groin strain. Um, or I don't know if he pulled it. He has a strain that uh that he definitely has missed the first two games back. That's why he didn't play in the All Star game. Um, and I don't think we're yes, I, I did he's going to be that. back. Yeah, I'm not sure we're going to anticipate going to be back for a while. So we have CJ as the primary ball handler, and we've had we've seen two games of that. And the first game was like the CJ and Mello show, 
And the second game, you know, they actually both scored more. But in my, in my opinion, watching it, it felt a little bit more like a a, a complete game, although it was a barely squeaked out a win against Detroit. So we're just going to pretend that didn't happen. Um, um, one thing I always ask people about their teams is uh, who's the leader in the locker room? Right. So right now that might be anybody's guess, but <laughs> I mean, Jonathan Abrams over at Bleacher Report and a couple other um, great writers have chronicled this already, but the Pacers literally have a reset button a button outside of their practice facility that it players can kind of symbolically hit. And that, that just completely is like Oladipo's personality permeates their culture. That's to reset. And he takes each day at a time. He has a positive energy. He doesn't dwell on the past and is just comes in and ready to reset it. And, you know, kind of conversely Brogdon's kind of been the source of calm, steadying presence all year, but you know, Last night when they're in the midst of a 46-point loss, Victor obviously wasn't there, and I'm not sure that Brogdon was doing much to rally the troops. So, I mean, they just have something amiss right now with their energy and effort and connectivity. So whoever that vocal leader is probably could stand to be doing some vocal leading. I don't know. All right, I'm surprised we haven't heard. I mean, maybe they don't want to make it public that there hasn't been a players-only meeting at this point, honestly, just with how, how they've looked out on the floor. looks like a team primed for a, a powwow behind closed doors. It seems like it's often the Blazers who serve as people's get back games. So we'll see if that, we'll see if that holds true. Uh, one last question. Are there any fan favorites or people on players on the team who people outside of Indiana might not really know much about who you want to tell us about? Right. I mean, the Pacers have quite a few like, lovable role players, I'd say. I mean, TJ McConnell, I think, has exceeded a lot of people's expectations. And Doug McDermott's been what I think the Pacers originally imagined. He's improved his game. He's he's more apt to put the ball on the floor. But my personal pick is going to have to be Justin Holiday. He was one of their last players signed. He's like a consummate three and D pro. And I think people already knew that. But like, Um, The year after Paul George came back from his injury, people may not remember this that are outside of Indiana, but there was a lot of pressure on him to play the four spot and he really didn't want to make that adjustment coming back from injury and uh, CJ miles behind closed doors stepped up and kind of volunteered himself as tribute to play that position and, and it didn't work out super well I mean he he dealt with some injuries and his three-point percentage I think kind of fluctuated by from the beating he was taking from playing up a position and ultimately the Pacers ended up finishing out that season with Miles Turner and Jan Mahinmi um, but I tell that story because Justin Holiday is basically doing what CJ Miles he's the actualized version of what CJ Miles attempted valiantly to be that year I mean he he plays the four off the bench he takes some beatings from bigger players and that's what I hinted at earlier when the Pacers played the Blazers in that last game Mello I think only scored in like the low teens I don't have that number in front of me but in a way that you don't necessarily think about him he was posting up you know jab stepping at the block against Justin Holiday, and the Pacers weren't super good at when they were timing the double teams that they have to send when Justin's getting posted up because he just doesn't have the heft that you see now with like the Rockets or the Celtics who are playing smaller lineups to hold up in that situation and 
they would send a double and then Melo would either shoot it or he did pretty decently passing out of it. But as soon as he would shoot it, then, you know, TJ McConnell or somebody's having to sink against Hassan Whiteside and Hassan Whiteside got some easy putbacks out of that. But it, that's something that the Pacers have to look at. They don't have a rock solid option at the four, but for everything Justin's been, he plays minutes at the four. He'll go out there and get thrown out minutes against other teams, best perimeter players. He finishes games in the closing lineup at a lot of times and, and place of Jeremy Lamb, or maybe if they want to play smaller with only Turner or Sabonis on the floor, I just give a lot of props to the role player glue that Justin Holiday has provided this year. Well, keep our eyes out for him. Now, who's the older brother, Aaron or Justin? Justin is older, right? Justin, Justin, yeah. Is he the oldest Holiday, or is yes, Drew? He is, he, is the the el- he is the elder statesman of the He's Holiday the big brother. Quartet. And, and Aaron is the youngest? Yes. Right on. Well, you have, um, you know, you have three guys named two TJ, two guys whose last name is Holiday. <laughs> you know that, and that they can... played that lineup occasionally at the beginning of the year: oh, two really? Holidays and three TJs. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, I always get caught up in those funny little patterns. Well, Caitlin, thank you so much for joining me to tell me a little bit about the state of Indianapolis or the state of the Pacers. Anything else you want to add before we sign off about how things are going with the team? No, I mean, I just maybe by the time that this gets released, things will have turned up a bit from the Hornets game on Tuesday. And maybe I can't believe I forgot that that Dame had hurt his hamstring, but maybe the Blazers will come together and rally behind, (laughs) find some of their mojo from their most Mm -hmm. recent narrow win over the Pistons. And we will actually (laughs) get a good game since this is on TNT. I hope so. I I hope it's a... I hope it's a good game too. Yeah, two teams really in a different place than they thought they would be at the beginning of the season. Um, yeah, and it's a it's a real bummer to have and no more out. injuries. No yeah, more. Injuries. I know. I mean, neither of us like have room. I mean, there's no other bodies on the. Yeah, we've we've had you know nights where there were seven or you know eight players, seven players in the lineup. Um, it's been pretty sad, but yeah. Uh, Damien getting a groin injury was just kind of like the last straw and it was right before the all-star break and so when he was doing his concert during yeah I, I even break, watched all that and knew all that I can't believe I spaced yeah. that <laughs> I mean, it still matters for what the Pacers do defensively because Dame was a great example of some of that but yeah it's been interesting to see uh how you know what CJ's doing and having him figure out what his mark on the game is because he's just been alongside Dame for so so long um you know, we're two games in now. To, it's interesting to see what it's like. Well, uh, you want to tell folks where they can find your work? Yes, um, I'm at Indy Cornrows, which is the SB Nation Indiana Pacers blog. I usually have a couple things up there per week that are more analysis based. And if people just want to get a taste of that, I think the Sabonis piece on the screening techniques that I mentioned earlier is always pinned at the top of my profile. So. Yeah, check it out check that out i love screens i love i was one of the when the blazers did the big roster turnover i was just like who's gonna screen for damien and it freaked me out quite a bit and uh we've still not replaced all of the screeners but that's how it goes well anyway caitlin thanks so much again for joining us and uh we will uh, have to connect again next year or right before the two teams see each other in the championship playoffs right yeah yeah obviously (laughs) all right thanks again caitlin we'll talk to you later bye (laughs) thanks